This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. What is freedom? How can we talk about free will in the multiverse, a universe with infinite copies of ourselves? At its core, freedom means being able to make a personal conscious decision about your own behavior. Freedom means choosing your own path out of poverty. Human imagination is our greatest freedom. For indigenous people, freedom is self-determination. It originally meant the power to rule, and in a democracy, the power to rule and be ruled as an equal. With our colleagues across the campus, the Division of Arts and Humanities at the University of California, San Diego, presents Degrees of Freedom. An extraordinary public lecture series featuring six unique perspectives on what it means to be free. My idea in Degrees of Freedom was not only to be multidisciplinary, but to kind of start from the bottom up. And I figured an astrophysicist would fill that bill. How much more basic can you get than to discuss freedom at the level of the cosmos, the universe, the multiverse? Not that I have any idea what Professor Keating will be saying tonight, but I'm glad that he'll be here to speak in that way. I'm also delighted that uh, Professor Keating is leading off the series because this series has always been about outreach to the public. I know a number of you have been joining us since 11 years ago, if you can believe it, when we started these programs, when it was still housed in Eleanor Roosevelt College as part of the Making of the Modern World. It was about outreach. At that time, it was about bringing you the making of the modern world, remember, the short version to the community. And as I will explain in just a second, Professor Keating is all about outreach. So let me say a few things about Brian Keating. He was educated at Case Western Reserve, undergraduate, Brown University, his PhD in physics, he did a couple of postdocs, one at Stanford and one at Caltech, joining UC San Diego in 2004. Among many, many other honors, he was the recipient of a White House Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers when he was an assistant professor, conferred on him by President George W. Bush in 2007. Outreach. He has reached out to well over 2,000 school children from kindergarten up through 12th grades. He is a board member of Math for America in San Diego, has been for the last almost 10 years, a board member of the San Diego Air and Space Museum, and a trustee of the National Museum of Mathematics in Manhattan. He has, in the past couple of months alone, given two 
TED Talks. That's two more than I've ever given in my life. Can you tell I'm a little bit envious? And did I mention that he flies airplanes, too? He flies kids in airplanes. In any case, tonight's topic is Three Degrees of Freedom, the Cosmic Background, and the Multiverse. Please join me in welcoming to the podium Professor Brian Keating. I want to talk to you tonight about my perspective and some of the modern physics perspective that we have on what actually can be gleaned about the possibilities, the constraints, the lack of freedom, the degrees of freedom that we have, what we consider free will. And I want to point out that as I, as I uh, give this presentation that almost none of this is my work alone. Uh, in fact, it's the work of, of these people that you see on the screen. These are uh, about 20 of us that work at UCSD in cosmology. These are the uh, brilliant undergraduates and graduate students that I'm privileged to call uh, my employees that, that are on this epic quest to discover what the universe was really like at the beginning of time. And so there's undergraduates here, a real cross-section of, of the world, literally people from as far away as Antarctica, Thailand, and all places in between. Uh, I do have some graduate students you'll see in this picture. I have nine graduate students, uh, which is uh, quite a handful, uh, almost as difficult as my two, uh, two toddlers that I have at home. Uh, but these graduate students over here and over here, um, I just want to point out these are living examples. Graduate students are living examples of people that have no free will, okay? So <laughs> for those of you that are... Those of you that are academics know that. Okay, so this is us on the roof of the surf building uh, near the Price Center and, uh, and the center of campus. And these are the people that do the hard work that I get to come up and steal credit for. So these are the, the, uh, the great people. Now, tonight I'm going to talk about um, the physics of free will, what I call the physics of free will. And I told that to someone. They said, great, I love free willy. But I've never understood the physics behind free will. So I was going to go through the physics. No, I'm not going to talk about that. But when you do see this picture of Free Willy jumping a few meters above this, this cute guy's head over here, then you'll know I'm back to talking about free will. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the physics, a little bit about a travelogue, what it's like to go to these exotic places where UCSD is building cutting-edge technology. And then in the conclusions that I'll, that I'll wrap up with, I'll talk about our perspectives from a physicist's point of view about free will, which is a fascinating subject. So we have a lot of uh, power in physics. And in, from the very beginning, we felt that physics was a predictive science. So to have prediction presupposes that there's some sense of determinism. And in fact, ever since Newton came up with his laws of motion, physicists and, and theologians and philosophers were fearful that this essentially meant that we have no free will because everything is foreordained once you specify the laws of motion. And it really wasn't until the early 1900s, you know, several hundred years after Newton, that it was realized that knowing everything about a system, even its initial conditions, wasn't sufficient to understand and predict what would happen in the future. And some say that ushered back, Heisenberg ushered back the possibility for free will to exist. And we'll hopefully have some time to discuss this later on. But from my perspective, uh, the most interesting aspect of free will is that it implies some sort of choice and that you can have control and you're not bound to your, to, your, um, to your decisions in life, that it's actually under your control. And I think that's a very powerful notion because in, in 
our experience, we have the ability to control where we go, uh, what we do, what time we show up for uh, events, for example. So we have control over where we find ourselves in this abstract uh, continuum that physicists call space-time, combination of space and time. And yet space is very different from time. Space, for example, we could be, we can maneuver ourselves throughout space, but we can't do so and maneuver ourselves in time. We can't go back in time. And if you can, please see me later because I'd like to know what the lottery numbers uh, I should have picked yesterday. So it's very, it's very easy to see that there's an illusion because we have control over our spatial motion that, well, we must have some control over our temporal motion, but we don't. And the question is, at least in my mind, what are the implications for this for making choices and making decisions when you're restricted in essentially one quarter of our ability to move? Space-time is this three dimensions of space plus one dimension of time, and it's one of the underpinnings of all of modern science. So I want to also talk to you about how the past can help us understand the future. If we can understand what the very beginning of time was like, many believe that we'll be able to accurately predict what will happen billions, perhaps trillions of years from now. And so does that enforce or restrict some sense of our ability to control what we consider our, our actions, our choices? Is there some restrictions that are imposed on our degrees of freedom that we would ordinarily have? And the question is, what will the past be able to teach us about the future? And I'd like to, you guys to think about, those of you who have been to college or UCSD alumni, I know there's some in the audience, I want you to kind of come along in a little bit of a journey tonight and, and think back, not to some boring class that you may have taken by you know, me or another colleague at UCSD, but really think back to the real education that you had when you were sitting on the couch in the dorm room just talking about life and the world and the universe. Take yourself back to that time. And I think it's very powerful, and I think this is something that drove most of our colleagues into study these big questions. But we lose track of it over time as we have to deal with the day-to-day -day realities of publications and tenure and all sorts of things. But I never like to lose that, and that's what inspired me to become an astrophysicist, a cosmologist. And so what... I want you guys to think about is what could it possibly be like at the very beginning of time, and in turn, what will that possibly tell us about the deep, deep future, the distant future, and that's what I'll be discussing tonight. And it's a quest as old as, as time itself. This is a beautiful woodcut um, that was done in the uh, 1800s, right when they invented Photoshop. It was colorized. <laughs> Uh, and it depicts this quest. I like to think this is Galileo for a reason I'll explain in just a bit. But a, a figure peering back into space. And when you look out in space, you look back in time. Everybody that's sitting a foot away from me, farther away from me, appears to me to be one second younger, because uh, one nanosecond younger, because light travels about one foot per nanosecond. And so usually at this point, you know, people start moving to the back. You know, it seems to be a great way to, to do anti-aging, but in fact, it doesn't work that way. But this woodcut depicts, depicts this quest to peer beyond what you can see with your eyes and use your mind and other tools developed by, uh, uh, by physicists and use those tools to study what the very distant past was like in an attempt to understand what the future is about. And I'll keep coming back to that. So this is, uh, we're almost at the one, uh, five, uh, 451st birthday of my hero, my scientific hero, the first physicist in history, Galileo. The survey done by the National Science Foundation, the organization that funds my research and many others, found that something like 78 million people 
uh, roughly one in four Americans didn't know that the, that the sun is the center of the solar system, that the Earth is orbiting around the sun and not the other way around. So I gave this talk in Italy, and everyone's laughing, ah, stupid American. I don't know why I do a French accent for an Italian, but, <laughs> but I said in the, the, the bottom, but don't worry about this. 25% of Americans don't get it, but 36% of Europeans didn't understand it. So USA, <laughs> we're not dead last. So the problem that Galileo found himself in was that it was impossible at the time, other than using his device, the refracting telescope, it was impossible for the church to accept that the sun was not the center, that the earth was not the center of the solar system, which was effectively the universe. The entire universe was our solar system as far as it was understood. So for many years, it was thought that the, that the Europe was essentially in the center of the earth, and then Finally, Galileo comes around after it had been shown that the Earth is actually a spherical structure and that there's no center on the surface of the Earth. But we're not, also, we're not only not the center of, the, of a flat Earth, we're also not the center of the universe, the solar system, or any other scale that you choose. There's nothing special about Earth, which I claim to be, you know, Galileo pricking our cosmic ego and making us, you know, putting us in our place, that there's actually nothing in particular that's, uh, that's unique or special about, about Earth. So we now know this is true. And my question is, are we the center of the multiverse? And what that means will become clear later on. The short answer is that we believe that the universe, thanks to data that my instrument and other instruments have collected, that there may be very strong evidence that the universe that we call everything that is, is actually one small component of a much vaster structure called the multiverse. And I'll hopefully have time to explain that, or I'll assign it as a homework problem. Either way, we'll get into it. So this, back to this woodcut. When you look at things that are close to you, you're looking at things that are newer, that seem younger, fresher. When you look at things farther away, they look different than they do today. In fact, you see them as they were when they were younger. So the farthest back that you can go using visible light is this beautiful image here called the Hubble Deep Field. And what this Hubble Deep Field image shows, every single speck of light on this diagram is a galaxy. Not a galaxy, not a star, with the exception of just a handful of stars. You can recognize them by these pluses, which are these diffraction spikes. In this image, the other 5,000 spots of light are galaxies, island universes, collections of two, 300 billion, 400 billion, maybe as many as a trillion stars, each one of these. There's 5,000 here. And the question is, well, big deal. This looks pretty big to have 5,000 galaxies. No, if you went out and looked up where Hubble was looking when this image was taken, the area of sky that Hubble was looking at was only about as big as this laser pointer spot. So the question is, in each laser pointer spot size on the sky, there's 5,000 galaxies. How many total galaxies are there in the universe? All you have to do is count up how many laser pointers it would take to cover the entire room. So I like to do that. So give me some time. No, it actually, if you do that, there's an amazing coincidence that there's roughly the same number of galaxies as stars, namely two to 300 billion galaxies, each one containing two to 300 billion stars. And each one of those stars we think can have dozens of planets potentially from the Kepler mission. We're now finding that Earth isn't even special, even in the sense of a planet that could potentially support life. It's an amazing time to be a scientist. So the question is, how far back can you look? And just like someone in the back row, you can't only see as far as you can until something gets in your way, like the head in front of you. So if you're looking back in space, 
And you see this gentleman here. He's closer to you. He'll look older than this adorable figure in the back, okay? Who will also look smaller. So this is baby Einstein. This is old Einstein. And the difference in space between these two people, these images, if they're both twins, if twin Einstein had a twin, uh, uh, then this twin would be roughly the age that Einstein was in light years times the speed of light, away from us today. So roughly 70 to 80 light years away. So light travels tremendously quickly, but at a finite speed. And that has important ramifications for what we're going to talk about today. So when we look back in space, the farther back we look, the more grotesque or different or, 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 or far removed from our experience that the universe appears. Close to us, we see stars, galaxies, even planets. As you go back, though, to just a couple of hundred million years after the Big Bang, the universe starts to look very different. And if you go back to just about 400,000 years after the Big Bang, you wouldn't see anything with light anywhere near the richness of structure that I showed in the Hubble deep field image. In fact, you'd see a pretty, pretty ugly-looking glow. And I'm going to illustrate that. So that ugly glow is actually what pays my bills at home, and it's called the cosmic microwave background radiation, or the three-degree Kelvin background, hence the title of my talk, Three Degrees of Freedom. If you go out in space, you look out, you see this inky blackness, if you look with your eyes, but it's actually not all that barren. In fact, most of the light in the universe is in the form of the cosmic microwave background radiation. If you go outside this room and you have a little tiny box that's a cubic centimeter sized, you'll collect roughly 400 photons from the Big Bang, 400 particles of light. So if you had microwave vision and you looked out onto the sky day or night, you'd see this uniform glow in all directions. And that's called the cosmic microwave background radiation. It's been a treasure trove for physicists since it was discovered in 1965. In 1992, it was found that the universe that we look out onto in the terms of microwave vision, if you could see with microwaves, you'd see this beautiful modeled pattern that represents the structures that are in the universe. These are essentially clusters of matter, dark matter, ordinary matter, that will eventually form into clusters of galaxies, which will have stars and planets and people and, and universities on them. And the question is, is this unique? So I have this beautiful diagram of this printed on a, on a, balloon, on a beach ball that was made by my friends at NASA. And it shows the night sky as if you're some omniscient god looking down at our universe. And the question is, is this God, is, are they looking at just one of these? Or are there millions of these things, trillions of these things, an infinite number of these things? And if there are, what are the implications for each of us here tonight? And there are actually very, very strong implications for us. And I, uh, I hope to endeavor to discuss that. I want to give you just a brief description of the history of the universe in one or two slides. This is a, a very cartoonish diagram that shows, again, it shows the modern universe over here, 13.8 billion years after the Big Bang. That's today. That's how much time has elapsed since the Big Bang. We can see with uh, visible light all the way back till the cosmic microwave background radiation was produced. That, as I said, is roughly 400,000 years after the Big Bang. We actually understand all the laws of physics are understood extremely well back to one second after the Big Bang. Not one second ago, which is what most people assume about me. Uh, I can only understand what happened a second ago. We actually understand very, very accurately what happened up until the time a little bit after nuclear fusion uh, first began in the extremely early universe. And the question that physicists have 
being greedy is how much farther back in time can we go? Can we go back to time equals zero? Can we go back to the Big Bang? Can we go back before the Big Bang? What happened 15 minutes before the Big Bang? Okay, that's a question we would like to answer. What will happen 15 trillion years from now is another question we'd like to answer. And it turns out both those questions are interrelated. And I'll uh, describe that in just a bit. This is just a cartoon of our telescope bicep that I'll spend some time talking about. So I always like to liken the quest to understand the Big Bang in a little bit more familiar terms. What we're trying to do is use this image of microwaves that I show on this beach ball or I show on this slide. Either way, this is just this beach ball cut out, laid flat as best as you can, and colored slightly differently. It's essentially the same map of the first structures in the universe to ever form, or at least to ever leave their imprint on this wonderful tool called the cosmic microwave background radiation. So this represents the universe as it was 380,000 years after the Big Bang, roughly 10 trillion seconds after the Big Bang. What we're trying to do is understand what was the universe like at a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang or so. And in fact, we'd like to understand it at time equals zero. For technical reasons, we think that we can go from this image here at 400,000 years after the Big Bang back as far as a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. So 36 orders of magnitude farther back in time than what we understand today at one second. But this is an extrapolation in time of 50 orders of magnitude in time. So I'm not a biologist, but uh, biology friends of mine tell me that this structure over here is called a blastocyst. A blastocyst is a collection of cells that represent, as I always like to say it, what the human body, what, what humans look like, what you look like a thousand seconds after your own personal Big Bang. Okay, I don't want to get too graphic here because there's, there's children here, but you get the picture. Thousand seconds after conception, the human embryo, if you will, is a collection of about 300 to 400 cells called a blastocyst. And the question is, if you were to look at what this beautiful blastocyst looks like roughly 30, 40, 50 years later, okay, this handsome man over here, <laughs> my, our boss here, uh, Pradeep Koshla. If you were to look at him, I'm calling him a billion seconds old. You can convert that, Pradeep. I'm being very charitable, but I believe you guys can figure out how old he is. So this is an extrapolation in time of a factor of a million. It seems very much impossible to do that. And no one would say, hmm, if I looked at this blastocyst, I know exactly he's going to have this beautiful handlebar mustache, you know, come 30, 40, 50 years from now. So clearly that's impossible. And yet we're trying to do much, much harder extrapolation, 50 orders of magnitude, 44 orders of magnitude more extrapolation in time with the universe, and yet we think we can do that. The way we do that is we continue to use the surface of photons that come to us from the Big Bang, called the cosmic microwave background radiation, the three degrees background that comes in all directions but has tiny little variations in it. Those variations, we believe, can be attributed to one of two sources. The source on the left are waves of density compression, expansion of the universe, dark matter, ordinary matter oscillating like a fluid, like dripping a, a, a drop into a bucket, it will oscillate. But there's another type of wave which is also present in the early universe, we think, if something called inflation took place. And that's called a gravitational wave. A wave of gravity can penetrate through all the matter in this room, through the Earth, through our galaxy, and in fact throughout the entire universe. And this is the 100th anniversary of Einstein predicting, laying down the framework of general relativity, 
which provided the framework for discovery of the pr uh, prediction of gravitational radiation. If gravitational radiation, these waves of gravity, can be discovered in an experiment that's looking at this ancient light from the Big Bang, then we'll know that inflation, this exponential explosive expansion, took place a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. And the implications of that will become apparent. So this got a lot of attention uh, all around the headli uh, headlines around the world when it was claimed uh, by our team that there was evidence, seeming to be evidence, for the Big Bang being produced out of an extraordinary rapid explosive expansion of space-time called inflation. I like this headline down here. It says, man suddenly sees the start of the universe. Like some guy is just, oh, there it goes. Wow, that's great. Uh, this happened the day after the Malaysian airliner went missing, and so people thought it was ironic that we can find waves of gravity, but not a giant airplane. Okay, kind of sick humor. But the most impressive headline came from our own UCSD guardian, which was very circumspect by saying, UCS sci UCSD scientists prove inflation theory. Now, you can't actually prove a scientific theory using observations. So that's not logically possible. You can prove something in mathematics, one plus one equals two, you can prove that, but you can't technically prove something in physics. You can say there's evidence for it, the theory of inflation, the theory of evolution, the theory of relativity, uh, there's evidence for it, but you can never, strictly speaking, in the way a mathematician would say, prove it. Yet I appreciate them giving us credit for proving something like this. This is a collection of team members, some of whom are in this audience here, uh, that built, deployed this instrument to the South Pole, took data with it for three years uh, at the very bottom of the world, and sent back that data and analyzed it over about four years to come up with the result that I mentioned. This is what the telescope looks like. It's uh, the BICEP2 telescope. Uh, it's named that way. That it's an acronym that I won't uh, uh, pain you with. Uh, not, not terribly tortured. But the interesting thing to notice about this instrument is that it's the coldest telescope in the known universe, to which some people say, you know, but what about the multiverse? But hold on, we'll get to that. It's the coldest telescope in the universe because it's cooled below the temperature of the three-degree Kelvin microwave background. It's cooled to minus 454 degrees Fahrenheit, colder than La Jolla tonight. <laughs> so the question of how we design this telescope to look for the signature that my friends had told me would be there came to me about 14 years ago when I was at Caltech. And the first question you ask when you're designing a telescope is, what are you looking for? So the Hubble telescope is looking for these galaxies. Perhaps it's looking at the moon. As I said, the image that you see in the background here represents a tiny sliver of the night sky, roughly the size of a laser pointer. Here it is compared to the size of the full moon. So how big is what you're looking for on the sky? That's one consideration. You can't magnify the whole sky by an arbitrary amount. It won't fit onto your, onto your, uh, into your telescope. It won't fit into your detector system. So here's the Hubble telescope. Now, Galileo, when he was building the first or using the first refracting telescope, the first telescope ever made and used for uh, astronomical purposes, here's a picture of it, he was able to draw sketches of features on the moon much, much coarser than Hubble. So his telescope's only about an inch across. The aperture of his telescope was an inch across, and Hubble's about 100 times bigger. So it can see things roughly 100 times smaller. So it can see these really tiny features that Galileo couldn't see. But here's a depiction of what we're looking for. We're looking for huge things on the sky, much bigger than Hubble, much bigger than the size of the full moon. We're looking for these fluctuations, which on the sky are as big as your thumb 
nail is when you hold it at arm's length. So we're looking for very large things. So we don't need to build a 100-inch diameter telescope. So BICEP's only about 12 inches in diameter. It's quite compact. Here's me last summer in, uh, in Florence at Galileo Museum in downtown Florence, beautiful museum, with the, one of the original telescopes that Galileo got to use. And our telescope, just like Galileo's, is a refracting telescope. Uh, I found out they really are attached to it when I tried to walk off with it. But I, I'll show you uh, uh, an example of how we build our telescope using two different types of, of, of technology. We use essentially simple technology. We use lenses that are shown here, only a foot in diameter. I have one of them here, an example of one of them here. It's made of high-density polyethylene. It's nothing more than the material made in milk jugs. So you can buy the material that we use to make these lenses. We can, you can buy them down at the corner grocery store. And just like a milk jug, when you pick up a milk jug, you can feel that the milk inside of it is cold. We're looking for heat. Heat propagates just beautifully through this, even though I can't see you guys through it, and I certainly couldn't see the moon through it. Uh, we can actually see microwaves perfectly through it, and it gets focused onto our detectors, which are things that you can't find down at your neighborhood grocery store. These are superconducting detectors made at JPL uh, in the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at Caltech. These are detectors that have to be cooled down to just a quarter of a degree above absolute zero, even colder than the temperature of liquid helium, much colder than the temperature of the cosmic microwave background radiation. These little tiny superconducting detectors are the most sensitive detectors ever made for the science that we're doing. And after the talk, you're welcome to come up and look at them. We cool these things down to near absolute zero. And then the next question is, where do we put this telescope? So when Mount Palomar was built about 70 or 80 years ago, it was built uh, just near north of Julian. Uh, some of you, I'm sure, have visited it. It's a 200-inch telescope. It was the biggest telescope in the world. But it was built in San Diego, not too far from San Diego. But nowadays, we'd never build a telescope here. And the proof is we haven't built a telescope here since uh, this telescope in Mount Palomar. And the reason is Palomar Telescope, Palomar Observatory, is looking for light. It's looking for photons. It's looking for visible light, rather in the form of light from distant galaxies that you can actually see with your naked eye. They used to put their eye on, the, on, on parts of this telescope. Nowadays, we only use astronomical sensors, CCD detectors, etc. So you have to choose very carefully. You have to know the future, that what you're looking for is not going to be overwhelmed by the background, the ambient sky, the brightness of San Diego. Today would make it a terrible idea to put a big optical telescope here. Uh, and, and similarly, we had to find a, a, a place to put our telescope, the BICEP telescope, that was equally well qualified to do the science that we were doing. We decided to take our telescope to the very bottom of the planet for a variety of reasons. Uh, it's not the first place you'd think about, you know, why would anybody leave San Diego to go to a place like this? Literally, it can be 100 degrees colder in the winter here. If we have a Santa Ana, it can be well over 100 degrees uh, difference between the South Pole and San Diego. Uh, so why do we go there? Well, it has a variety of advantages. It's the world's coldest uh, continent of all seven continents. It's the highest continent by average elevation. It also is the driest continent, and that's the most important aspect for us. Water vapor absorbs microwaves. 
We don't want a microwave that's been traveling for 13.8 billion years on its way to our telescope to get absorbed in a water molecule above San, uh, San Diego. Even though it would be nice and I wouldn't have to travel away and take so much time to get down there, it would be wonderful to, to have the telescope here. But there's something like 100 times more water vapor in the atmosphere here than the South Pole. So it's a much, much better observatory to go to. And we go there, as I always say, despite the grave dangers, as I photographed in my last voyage down to the South Pole. So there are dangers here, but it's still worth it to go down there. When you go down there, you get uh, treated to a stay in lovely New Zealand, which is a wonderful place to go visit if you've never been there. And you can actually see where the uh, original, the heroic age of exploration of the South Pole took place in 1912, 1911 and 1912. It's just past 100 years since mankind first set foot on the South Pole. This depicts the second person to ever reach the South Pole. This is Robert Falcon Scott, who reached the South Pole only to find or Norwegian flag sticking out of the ground there. So imagine, I like to take people back to 1969 when uh, American astronauts first landed on the moon. But imagine if we got there and we saw there's a flag of Guatemala sticking out of the ground. We'd be very upset, right? We spent a lot of money. Uh, We had the space race. Well, the space race back then was to reach the bottom of the world. It was the last frontier literally on Earth. And so that was accomplished in 1911 by our Norwegian team, Roald Amundsen's team. And Scott's team got there just about three weeks afterwards, and that three weeks was crucial. He left so close to the beginning of fall down in Antarctica, six months out of phase with up here, and he was so close to the beginning of fall in March that his team actually froze to death, and they died. And his wife uh, was a sculptor, and she actually sculpted this, uh, this beautiful sculpture, which you can see in Christchurch, New Zealand, where we leave from. And this sculpture depicts him walking directly north from the South Pole to London, where she was. So it's kind of poignant to realize that. So there was a lot of danger. Um, nowadays, there's almost no danger in getting down there, except you'll have a, you know, a really long flight or you'll have some bad food on the flight. I'll talk about that. The first step in getting to Antarctica, after you fly, you fly commercially from here to New Zealand. Once you reach New Zealand, we have a nice uh, military-style base in Christchurch at the Antarctica Center. And you pick up your clothing that you're going to have because when you're down at the South Pole, there's no Walmarts or Targets or anything like that to buy stuff with. So you have to take everything you're going to need for up to a year. You have to bring all that with you. So you stuff all these articles of clothing into a bag and you take that on a plane with you along with your boarding pass. Don't forget that. Uh, And you get on one of these beauties here. This is a C-130 cargo plane. It's one of the few planes uh, that is still being operated by the New Zealand Air Force. You know, the New Zealanders, they don't have too many enemies, so this is actually like one-tenth of their whole Air Force. And in the back, you can see a Kiwi, okay? So they they put Kiwis on, and I guess they're supposed to intimidate their mighty, you know, the Australians or something. But anyway, you get on here. Here are your clothes packed in here. Look at this plane. There's no windows on it except for one, two, three. Oh, that might not be so bad, except if you go inside of it, this is what it looks like. This is first class. This is business class. You're sitting knee to knee carrying a sack of some kind of food that you've been, you've been told is edible. And uh, luckily, it's only for about 11 or 12 hours. Uh, there's no windows. There's no bathroom. And uh, they have a pot called the honey bucket. Don't ask me why. Uh, uh, and you're, you're there, but, you know, as I said, the flight's only about 11 or 12 hours. And sometimes you get to come back because the weather's too bad to land in Antarctica. And that's called a boomerang when you go out and come back. And that's happened to me. 
When you finally do land at the South Pole, after having flown across the, the great southern ocean, seeing icebergs. So I left San Diego, say, on a Wednesday. By Sunday, I'm seeing icebergs. It's amazing uh, that you can do all this in such a short period of time. So you see icebergs. That's pretty amazing. You land in Antarctica, and you land on a frozen ocean. Literally, it's a frozen ocean. Where you're staying is actually an island in the Antarctic, in the, in the uh, South Pacific, in the d- deep South Pacific Ocean. This is the super shuttle that you take into town. You get on this. I like that there's no traffic on the local freeways. But you can see here, and I also brought uh, some of this with me. I have a chunk of Antarctica. Antarctica is a continent. The North Pole is not a continent. There is no continent uh, where the North Pole is. If you drill down under the ice at the North Pole, you hit ocean. If you drill down under the ice in Antarctica, you hit rock. That's what makes it a continent. And a lot of it's volcanic. But 97% of the entire continent is covered in snow. So it's kind of, you know, San Diego replacing sand with snow. When you eventually reach the South Pole, you reach it by a special type of plane called an LC-130, which is a ski-equipped version of this, of this Hercules aircraft that's a military plane that we don't let the Kiwis fly, nor any other country. We only uh, allow American pilots to fly this plane. It's so valuable to the U.S. inventory. It's the only plane we won't allow as a pilot. I'm interested in all this aviation trivia. Uh, it's the only plane that we don't export to other countries. So that's a little food for thought. This is our telescope. This is the BICEP-2 telescope located at the, uh, just about a kilometer away from the geographic South Pole, the axis on which the Earth is turning. Where we work is a building called the Dark Sector Laboratory. That just means not that it's dark, but there's no radios, there's no transmission. There's nothing that can interfere with these wispy signals from the cosmos that we're trying so hard to detect. Just after we installed the telescope and its equipment in 2006, of course, uh, who comes down to visit us but a bunch of congressmen, senators, uh, and, and so forth, and uh, other distinguished people. And you can probably recognize who this is. This is uh, Senator John McCain. Now, this is 2006, okay? He ran for president in 2008. So this is two years before he ran for president. And he's outside here, and it's about negative 40 that day, 40 degrees Celsius below zero, which is also 40 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. And I like to think when he was down there that he was, he was wondering, you know, how are we going to detect inflation? We need more stimulus. So, so hopefully he was thinking that, and perhaps it could have caused inflation also, having stimulus. Now, a few moments later, you know, it's 40 degrees below zero outside. He comes indoors, and when we designed the telescope, we designed it so you could walk around in just a T-shirt if you wanted to. So what happened? He fell asleep. Okay? I don't blame him. You all know the feeling. You go out from a really cold day. You go inside warm. There's a fireplace there. There's no fireplace here. But uh, he took a nap. Okay? I don't fault him. You know, he's traveled a long way to get there. Uh, But I do know from talking to him that he had a dream, very interesting dream during this exposure. And he dreamt that he would find a polarizing running mate from somewhere cold. (laughs) But as you know, that's the wrong pole, wrong, wrong hemisphere. So this is a beautiful picture taken by our winter over. A winter over is someone who voluntarily agrees to spend up to a year of his or her life down at the South Pole. We pay them to do that. And we actually get some fantastic data during the winter months when the sun is below the horizon. The sun rises and sets just once per year. So there's only one day per year at the South Pole. So what do we discover and why is there so much attention paid to it? So we discovered a pattern of microwaves swirling and twisting on the sky. And that swirling, twisting pattern was thought originally to represent this direct evidence that waves of gravity were produced 
during the first explosion, the first initial violent expansion of space and time called inflation. This had huge implications. I just remind you, the swirling pattern I was depicted here, this was kind of cool, by the way, to get your scientific data plotted up in the Washington Post, okay? And they, they did a great job of it. You know, the same, you know, the same newspaper that broke Watergate. Now, if you compare that data, the simulated data, to what the real data actually looked like, there was almost this eerie match that was was just startling and actually quite scary. You know, I read uh, Galileo's biographies, and one thing that always struck me about him was that when he made a scientific discovery, his first reaction wasn't, well, of course I did, I'm so, I'm so great, or, or, or rather, this is going to be great, I'm going to make a lot of money from this, but it was actually almost like a panic, almost a terror, that he was seeing something that couldn't be. And that was the reaction that many of us had when we first saw this. There had to be another explanation for what we were seeing. Now, the scientific literature... Has been, uh, has been obsessed with our data. In less than a year, we've received over 700 scientific citations to our paper, which some scientists only get in a career. So, so to have this in less than a year is just breathtaking. And it's all because of the implications that this model would be if we actually have discovered evidence for inflation. It would predict things, as I'll discuss, related to the biggest questions of all, Namely, things just like the multiverse that I'll discuss. Uh, our work on the swirling pattern of microwaves that we claimed evidence for has been called into question. Um, and that question is healthy. We don't have authority figures in science, someone like some religious you know, guru whose word is sacrosanct and we cannot refute it. And science, that's completely anathema to us. And in fact, many scientists are anti-authoritarian and we don't like to be told what to do. So even Einstein can be overturned at any moment by people, even some of the people in this room. So science is egalitarian and it's a meritocracy and it's good to have questions like this. Because it may turn out that there are mistakes, or not intentional and not blunders, but there may be other signals that can mimic the signal that we've seen that could potentially masquerade as a signal that we're looking for, but be caused by a more prosaic type of emission. So it's theorized that um, by many in the community that the results that we've seen may actually have been grains of dust shown here, greatly magnified, 150 times magnified, these grains of dust can acquire a little bit of a tilt and a twisting pattern themselves when they're in the intergalactic magnetic field. And that could mimic and masquerade, as I said, the exact pattern that we're looking for. This is a very hot topic for our team and other teams that are uh, investigating this signal to find out if the evidence that we have is conclusive that inflation took place. So as I said, what we're looking for is this wispy imprint of what's called inflation. This explosive expansion of space and time that took place a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. And if that took place, that will have tremendous ramifications for physics, for philosophy even, for theology. And that's where the connection comes to free willy and to free will. So it is hypothesized that our universe if inflation took place, that our universe will not be the only universe. In fact, it may be that there's an infinite number of other universes, as I'll describe. And that's because it's thought that inflation itself can't take place unless there's some greater expanse of space, called the multiverse, for it to expand into. 
So just as you may have thought when you were a kid, you know, what happens if I go to the edge of the universe and throw a stick out into the, uh, into the distant universe, what will it be going into? Well, in the model of the multiverse, as we currently understand it, you'll actually just be going into another part of space-time called the multiverse. And what's interesting about that is that it's theorized that universes can come into and out of existence. So here we are at the center of this beach ball, where the microwave background is raining down on us in all directions with tiny little imperfections and, and fluctuations. We're at the very center of it. But there could be another universe over here that we can't see because it's too old or it's too far away from us and there hasn't been enough time for light or any physical interaction between these two, multiverse, these two universes. And if that's true, there's nothing that prevents there from being universes that pop into and out of existence on a nanosecond, on the scale of a trillion years even. So we may just be one representation, one possibility in this greater sphere of potential other universes that is the combination set of which is called the multiverse. So these could pop into and out of existence, and it may be possible someday to observe an interaction between a neighboring universe and our own that's located a distance that's older than the age of the universe times the speed of light away from us. And that's what's so exciting about that. So I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but I do want to say that this is intimately related. The very origin of the universe is intimately related to the distant future of the universe. So there are many, many interesting connections between the physics of the very small and the physics of the very large, the cosmos and the universe and the potential multiverse, all the way maybe traced back to a common origin, if you will, which is the theory of these subatomic strings, string theory. And there seems to be this intimate relationship between string theory and cosmology that we're just peering into for the first time. Some describe string theory, this 11 or more dimensional theory of space and time, as being physics or mathematics of the 23rd century that happened to fall into the 21st century by accident. So the question is, what are the implications of the very small on the very big. Um, other physicists, a colleague of mine, Lawrence Krauss, has written an excellent book called The Universe from Nothing, which presupposes that this foam of roiling, bubbling, boiling foam of space-time called the multiverse can actually be encapsulated very simply and that it has average energy of zero. There's no energy in the universe. And that's actually not too hard for physicists to understand. We talk about particles and antiparticles and them coming into and out of existence and virtual particles. And for us, we're comfortable with speaking in these terms, although you know it's very far removed away from ordinary experience. So I recommend this book, and this, is, uh, this will be on my website as well, recommended reading for future homework. So many, many physicists are now supporting this model that the universe that we perceive is just one of billions of universes, trillions of universes, 10 to the 500th universes, an infinite number of universes. What are the implications of this astounding conjecture on us as human beings? And the reason that this is so interesting to me is that it starts to border onto, again, Think back to the dorm room. You're, you're talking about the biggest questions that you can possibly think about. And some say that this, you know, even is relevant to theology, religion, spirituality. How do these all interact with each other? This is the most fundamental thing that you can study, in my opinion, which is why I study it. It's the most interesting thing to me.
So the question is, are we just an island universe inside a vaster expanse called the multiverse? And that seems to be the implications of our data, if it is verified. And actually, even if our results cannot be confirmed by another experiment, it may be that in the future, an experiment will produce exactly the same results that I claim, that we earlier claimed. In other words, they may prove unequivocally that the universe began with an inflationary explosive expansion. And if that's ever done, then that will be evidence for the multiverse again. And in fact, many people suspect the multiverse occurs whether or not we're right and whether or not uh, another experiment can confirm us. They believe there's so much evidence in favor of inflation that it can't be wrong. And some people have problems with this. Uh, and I'll hopefully have a chance to discuss that. The reason that people find this so distasteful in the physics community is it brings up something called the anthropic principle. Anthro meaning mankind-centered, humankind-centered. And that says simply that the universe exists because, or we, we, we perceive the universe as being possible for, for people to exist because it's possible for people to exist to ask the question of why does the universe exist? In other words, the conditions of our universe are obviously right for life to form and for life to exist, and we are evidence of that. So this has been actually, uh, as I said, very controversial, this anthropic principle. It seems to be a Goldilocks-type story, which is the universe is just right for us to live in it, to ask questions about it. So many people have trouble with this. In fact, very eminent physicists have trouble with this. I do a demonstration of how we could actually observe the presence of another universe in the multiverse in this uh, TED talk that I gave last year. So it's uh, the actual collisions between these universes would be like the surfaces of these bubbles in a foam coming together. And that would make a unique imprint on this pattern of microwaves that we could see. And so far, we have no evidence for it. But as many people have said, you know, lack of evidence is not evidence uh, of lack. In other words, just because we don't see it yet, it may not be proof that the theory of the multiverse is not correct. So I think that this is actually very interesting. There are connections between the physics of the extremely big and the extremely uh, uh, small. There are connections between the very early universe and the very deep future universe. Uh, there's a beautiful cartoon here that summarizes this, this notion of parallel universes. Because if there are an infinite number of universes, then ladies and gentlemen, there are an infinite number of degrees of freedom talks going on right now. There are an infinite number of copies of you and me, uh, and, and m most of which have people awake uh, in the audience. And it's occurring at an infinite number of places in this vast collection of universes called the multiverse. That is startling. And I think that the implications for free will are even more dramatic. This cartoon shows here this notion of parallel universes and the differences that can arise. So there are the two people. I'll read it for you. It says, would you like to, this guy asks this girl, would you like to go for a drink? In this universe, she says, mm, why not? And they have kids. In this one, she says, no, thanks, and then they're alone. <laughs> and one's at the North Pole and one's at the South Pole. <laughs> so there's actually connections between this and what's called the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics, which is very, very interesting to me because quantum mechanics deals with the ultra-small. Cosmology deals with the ultra-big. And there seem to be unavoidable connections between these two different spheres. I'll just finish up by what I like to call the, uh, the physics of God. <laughs> it's a small subject. Uh, I'll get to politics later on. <laughs> so what can actually be said about God? Well, one of the 
uh, uh, colleagues, actually the next door neighbor to Lawrence Krauss, who wrote the book, A Universe from Nothing, which postulates the universe can come into existence without God, without any creator or any creation needed whatsoever. His next door neighbor at Arizona State University is Professor Paul Davies, who wrote uh, in an article in the New York Times, he talks about multiverse explanations. And he says down here, multiverse explanations are reminiscent of theological discussions. They invoke an infinity of unseen universes, as I mentioned, to explain the unusual features of the universe that we do inhabit. So that to him is essentially scientific theory dressed up in a way that's actually to hide its similarity to creationism. So I think that that's a very interesting thing. Are we just the way we are because of fine-tuning by a creator? Are we there because of this anthropic principle? Or a third pillar might be, it might be complete randomness. None of them are very easy to swallow, and all of them have different implications for free will. If we're created by a creator that has uh, definite implications, if there are an infinite number of us, literally, if there are an infinite number of ants in my backyard, as I often think there are, and I see them all moving in the same direction, I say, oh, but that guy's an individual. You know, he's doing his own thing. No, I say they're all basically doing the same thing. They're all just copies of each other. What if we're all just copies of other humans and other galaxies and other parts of the other universes and other parts of the multiverse? How could we say that we're actually capable of free will? We're just identical to any other creature an infinite number of times over. This is happening an infinite number of times over. This is horrendously distasteful to some physicists, and it's a joy and a pleasure to talk about. So what's my take? People wondered what, what my take is. And I, I always think that free will is pretty obvious. You know, it's, it's not too tempting you know, for me when I walk by a bank to go in and hold it up. Right? I, I don't need somebody telling me not to do that. I know I have the, the uh, ability to choose to do or do not do uh, some specific action. It seems obvious that I have free will. Um, other people suspect if there is a multiverse, if, there, if the multiverse is correct and there are an infinite number of us, how could there actually be a sense of the me that's making a choice, a specific choice? So I think that's pretty interesting. Um, on the other hand, if, there, if you're theologically inclined, you, you might say that there is some evidence or there might be some evidence in the fine-tuning of our universe to be so hospitable to life for us to be here in the first place. I think that's pretty interesting, uh, at least to think about. The question is whether or not it's provable. So, you know, people always say, well, you know, how can there be free will if you're religious? How can there be free will if there's a God or some creator that's enforcing what you do? And I always like to make the analogy, you know, if I make up an exam, as I am often, you know, likely to do, and I make up an exam, I can know the future because I can make it so hard that no one's going to pass it, right? The evil professor running the universe. So you can know that the future is going to happen as an omniscient God would know. And so I don't really know that that takes away the free will of somebody taking it, uh, taking such an infinitely hard exam. So I think that these are really interesting questions of, uh, that tie into the research that, that we've been uh, a part of here. And I'd like to close with, with just a few things. One, is, this is a beautiful picture of Galileo during the, uh, in front of the Holy Office. This is called the Holy Office, the Holy Sea. I don't know why they call it the Sea, but the Holy Sea. There he is. 
He's cowering behind this Roman soldier with a big Vatican sword on his side. And, you know, I'd be pretty scared if I was looking at this. So this was the Inquisition. You know, it's, it's, it, it took place, and he was forced to, uh, to retract his claim that the earth is in motion. And later on, he's said to have said that it, yet it still moves um, and retracted this claim under penalty of sword. But I always like to say he would have, you know, felt a lot more confident if he had a bigger bicep. So I want to close with just a few items of recommended reading because I always like to give homework. It's, you know, built into my DNA. So there, there are several books that I put on my website. So you can see my website, cosmology.ucsd.edu. Uh, this, these books are at a popular level, although there are some technical uh, aspects of both of them. Uh, there's a book that was written by uh, a science writer for, I understand there's some science teachers in the audience. This is for uh, fifth to ninth grade students. It's called Ice Scientist. And she wrote, uh, she did an interview with me, and I'm in chapter six, I believe it is, of this book. And to just today, she wrote me to tell me it's been uh, asked by the publisher to write a revised version of it. So that's pretty exciting. I often get, as some of my science colleagues will attest to, I often get you know, emails that say, you know, dear Professor Keating, I've got uh, this new idea that Einstein was wrong about everything, and I should get, and I'm about to hit delete. Uh, I got an email like this about four years ago. It said, hi, Professor Keating, I'm a, I'm a poet, and, um, and I've got some interesting ideas about cosmology. And as I was about to hit delete, uh, I saw, and uh, by the way, I won the Pulitzer Prize from President Obama in 2000. Oh, okay, let me read this email. And so this is none other than Professor Ray Armantrout here at UCSD in the literature department. And she and I talked for several hours over coffee, and she wrote a poem called Accounts, which she claims is inspired by me and it was dedicated to me, and actually won one of the best American poems of 2012, which is pretty cool, so you can pick that up if you're interested. And later on, we went on to teach a course called Poetry for Physicists, uh, because I think it's important, as this seminar series, as this lecture series demonstrates this multidisciplinary nature of the arts and the sciences being, as, as I've heard it described by Alan Alda recently, as long-lost lovers yearning to reunite. So there shouldn't be this difference and historically there's never been a difference between you know renaissance men and women scientists and poets and artists and i think that we need to get back to that so i was very pleased to teach this wonderful class with ray last year uh scientific american did a piece about our polar bear experiment and that's in uh that was about a year ago and uh, I just want to finish up by not recommended reading. I, I always, you know, think it's important for every 10 books I recommend, say, to recommend one book that you never pick up. Um, even to have on your coffee table, uh, it's not worth it. Um, I went to a talk by Stephen Hawking when he used to be able to give lectures, albeit very slowly in real time, and answer questions. And someone in the audience, I'll never forget it, asked him, uh, Professor Hawking, you know, you wrote this book. It's rumored that no one in the world has, uh, can understand this book. Book, not even you, and, and anyone who says that they can is a liar. So tell me, please, Professor, why did you write this book? And very slowly he, he said, because my daughter needed to go to college. And I think, I think that was a, I think, I think that says it all. So, so please spend your time on the other six or seven books that I recommend on my website. Please check it out. The links are available there. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.